Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you are among us. Um, we thank you that your gospel is still powerful, that um, this message still changes lives and hearts and can transform an entire city, and we just ask that you would keep doing that here. Um, we pray that uh, you would allow your gospel to go into every corner of this region through the people who are here, and you'd, you'd make us the missionaries that we should be to bring this good news to people around us. Uh, Father, we pray that you would be working among us this morning. Uh, we know that the Bible is your word. We know that it's the sword of the Spirit, and we know that it can pierce into our hearts and change us uh, in the seats that we sit in. And so we pray that you would do that this morning. Uh, Lord, we're gathered here not just to, to have an experience together, but to hear from your word, uh, to, to have your spirit teach us something, and to be transformed by it. So, so I pray that you would give us faith in the things that we read, help us to believe the gospel in a fresh way today, and leave here changed. Uh, we are, we're powerless to make that happen in anybody's heart, so we ask that your spirit would do that and that you teach us this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we started our study through the book of Mark last week, and it's uh, what we expect to be about a half-year walk through this book of Mark. And the story started last week with Mark announcing that he's got good news. Um, it's not just good advice that he's bringing. It's not just a new set of rules and laws that he's bringing. It's not a new religion that he's bringing, but good news that the Son of God stepped into history and was the one who was the promised king. That God had said that there was a king who was coming. He had said that there was this anointed one who would come and save his people. And the message of Mark is that Jesus is that Christ. He is that one who was coming to, to save his people. And he was coming not only as a man, but also as God himself, the Son of God, to come and live among us. And so, so Mark announced that he's got that good news. In the story last week, we saw that John the Baptist, who was Jesus' freaky redneck cousin, he baptizes Jesus, and then God himself announces that Jesus is the Son of God with whom he is well pleased. So a voice comes from heaven, the Spirit flutters down like a dove over Jesus in the water, and who he is is announced in a powerful way. Now immediately from there, and that's where we pick up the story today, in Mark, 1, or Mark chapter 1, verse 12, it says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. So Jesus goes from being baptized, being in that river, having this amazing mountaintop experience where the Father speaks and says, This is my Son, to being driven by God out into the wilderness. And it says, And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So this book of Mark, which is a book of action, says that immediately, and you see this word immediately come up over and over in this book of Mark, immediately Jesus goes from the mountaintop experience in the river with God out into the wilderness. And it says that he was driven out there by the Spirit. And the Greek word he uses there is actually the same word that's used when Jesus drives demons out of people or casts demons out of people. So this is a, a rapid, intense start to what's about to be an intense few years for Jesus. It's almost like that, that moment in the Olympic race where everybody's on the starting block and the gun fires and they explode off the starting block to just run and go. And that's what's, what's happening. Jesus is exploding into what are going to be three tumultuous years going immediately from that mountaintop experience out into the wilderness to be tempted. Which, by the way, is very similar to the way things go in our Christian lives. Um, we, we don't have lives where everything is always smooth and peaceful. Uh, sometimes we believe the lie that if we put our faith in Jesus, life just gets better and easier from there. But if we put our faith in Jesus, we have these mountaintop experiences where things are good and there's this real intimacy with God. But then we have our dark times in the wilderness 
And pretty often those dark times in the wilderness come right on the heels of the mountaintop experiences. You know, you go on this missions trip and everything is good and you're close with Jesus. You're telling people about Jesus. You're, you're praying. You're in the word. You come home with all kinds of resolutions to do things in a, in a right way. And then you come to your family and things are very tense there. Or you walk back into an ugly job situation or a difficulty with a child or difficulty with a friend. It seems like we go from the mountaintops to the valleys pretty quickly. And what we expected would just be this, you know, the lazy river ride at the water park ends up not being that the whole way. It ends up being that, that one where you get shot down the, the slide and then flushed down the toilet sometimes. Like that, that sometimes is, is that Christian walk. And so, so that's what Jesus is going through here. He, he goes through the high and then immediately there's the crash in the wilderness. Um, this will happen to us sometimes just because of you know, adrenaline, like where we have the adrenaline high of serving Jesus, being really active, serving him, and then the crash of the quiet that comes afterwards. You know, I know for me, Mondays are dark days. Like Mondays, I'm just depressed. I get to preach two times in the morning, and then Sunday night today, I get to do a wedding in between, and there's all kinds of adrenaline that comes with it. And so it's just like preaching the gospel all day long. It's exciting, new people hearing about Jesus. And then Monday morning, I just want to like sit in fetal position and, and whimper. And so... So I come and I do staff meeting, and the whole staff hates me. Like they, it's, it's bad because, because they're dark days. And so there's that natural adrenaline crash that comes afterwards, but there's more than that because Jesus here isn't just crashing after a mountaintop experience. He's tempted by Satan. And we don't just have natural causes working on our hearts and working on our bodies, but we have a real personal enemy in Satan. And I know as a church over the last few years, we haven't talked about him a whole lot. He just hasn't been brought up in a lot of the books that we've taught through. But this book of Mark does talk a lot about Satan and about demons. And so we will mention them as we go through here because they're very real. Uh, the Bible doesn't treat them like they're just a metaphor for evil. It doesn't treat them like they're just, uh, you know, we, we've got to find some way to explain evil, so let's give it a name and call it Satan. No, it says Satan is very real. He's this fallen angel. He's this demonic presence uh, in our lives, and there are other demons with him. Uh, we, we won't get too much into him today, but really it's, it's enough to say that Satan is not just an idea, but he's real. And here for the first time since Eden that we have recorded, Satan speaks directly to a person when he tempts Jesus in the wilderness. Now, now Mark, who, who records all the action of this story, he doesn't get into a lot of detail. He just says Jesus was driven into the wilderness by a spirit, he was tempted by Satan, and then angels came and ministered to him. So that's all Mark says, uh, which it's significant that that's all Mark says, and we're going to circle back around to that toward the end. But for now, if you could turn to Matthew 4, um, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all tell the same story of Jesus from different angles. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially are called the synoptic Gospels because the way they tell that story is very similar. But Matthew zooms in on this temptation in the wilderness, and what I'm hoping to do is see how Jesus was tempted, see how he responded to temptation, and recognize that we're tempted in the same ways and we can respond in the same ways, but then circle back around to Mark and see something that's even more significant for our, our ongoing fight against temptation. Because the Christian life is not easy. There is temptation. There are difficult times, and they, sin cries out to us and calls for us to follow it left and right. But there is strategy that we can follow to fight it, and something even deeper beneath all of that that we can do to be people who follow Jesus. But um, Mark, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Telling the same story, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, which you would expect. Um, 40 days and 40 nights, he hasn't eaten. And, and I don't know about you, but if I go a day without eating, the odds of me sinning go up. 
I'm, I'm grumpier, I'm madder, uh, and that's after a day. Jesus goes 40 days. So he is worn out, he's weakened, and sometimes we read through this story and we say, well, yeah, but he was God. You know, he had these God powers, and so he could have gone a million days without eating. He would have been fine. The Bible says that, that he is all God, but he's also all man. And so when he came, the hunger that he experienced after 40 days of not eating was the same as the hunger that we would experience. It wasn't miraculous hunger. It wasn't this, oh, yeah, I haven't eaten 40 days and I feel fine. He was worn down. So he was exhausted, he was skinny, he was tired, and he was in the exact same boat that we would be in if we were, had gone that long without eating. You know, sometimes we think that the incarnation, God becoming a man, was just God's photo op, like where you know, a president goes and he, he works on a Habitat Humanity house in his business casual clothes, for 15 minutes, and he's hammering and, and meeting people, and they're taking pictures of him, and this is photo op. It's the president identifying with us, and he's supposed to do that. He's the president, but then as soon as the cameras are done, he hops back in Air Force One and flies home. It wasn't a real, hey, I'm a big part of this project that's going on, but when Jesus came, it wasn't just a photo op. It wasn't just 15 minutes. I'm going to go out in the desert and pretend I'm hungry out there so they can feel like I'm one of them. No, he was one of us, and he was hungry. He was as worn down as we would be, and, and there were definitely times in his ministry that he would tap into his God powers and do miracles, but he did those miracles to teach people. He did those miracles to instruct people about who he is and what his coming kingdom would be like. He did those miracles to bless and heal people, but he wouldn't use them to be any less human than he was. He wouldn't use them to kind of skirt the human experience. And if he were to do that, if he were to use miracles to make himself not hungry, he would be off of his mission, which was to identify with us fully. So there he is, 40 days, he's worn down, and our tempter knows that when we're worn down, that's a good time to strike, so he comes. And it says, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So here Satan comes, and he tempts Jesus in the area of pleasure and comfort. And he tempts him with something that we wouldn't necessarily say is wrong. Um, There's no command anywhere in the Bible that says, don't turn stones into bread. I, I don't, that wouldn't be a sinful thing. That wouldn't be an immoral thing, it doesn't seem. So why is it that he tempts him with this? And again, the temptation here is for Jesus to use the power of his deity to make it so that he didn't have to go through the human experience, to take the right comfort and to put it in the wrong place and therefore have it be the wrong thing. Now, that's pretty often how we're tempted. Pretty often, Satan will come and, and tempt us to do something, not necessarily that always is evil in every context, but to take a good thing, even a God-given desire, and use it out of the right context so it becomes a sinful thing. You know, Satan comes and tempts with lust and sex, and it's not that sex is a bad thing. It was invented by God, but the temptation is to take that good thing and to use it outside of its rightful context of marriage, and, and at that point it becomes a bad thing. So Satan comes and he tempts with pleasure, tempts with comfort, and he tempts, to, tempts us to do something that in every context isn't necessarily wrong. That's what he does, and here's how Jesus responds. Verse 4, but he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus responds to that temptation, and the way that he responds is by quoting scripture. He hears the lie of sin, and this is how temptation gets its power, gets its power by lying to us. He hears the lie, speaks the truth, and believes the truth so that he can resist sin. Pretty often when we're tempted, we're not tempted with something that always looks bad. Sin usually has a label on it that makes it look pretty good. Like my Visa card is called a freedom card. And that's a lie. Um, I mean, that's, that's, 
I don't, I don't get the bill and say, hey, it's my freedom bill. No, I, I feel like that, that's the bill that I'm going to be enslaved to for the next couple of years. This doesn't feel like freedom. And you get rewards, 18% interest. But they're not going to, they're not going to call the thing the, the you'll be paying this for the rest of your life card or the exorbitant interest card. They're going to say, oh, it gives you freedom. You can get whatever you want whenever you want it until you reach that limit. And then, ha-ha. It, they, they know how to label something that's a temptation in a good way. And sin comes that way. It comes with a good label on it. It comes and offers us freedom. It comes and offers us peace. It comes and offers us pleasure. That's what sin offers Jesus. And Jesus is able to stand up and say, I know the offer that you're making, but here's the truth. I believe the truth. And he, he takes the scripture that he has memorized, quotes it, believes it, and that's how he resists the temptation to sin. And by the way, we should do the same thing. We need to, when we see the lies that sin offers us, we need to be able to speak the truth in the face of that sin. We, we need to hear the lie. What you really need is a better spouse. And we need to say, man shall not live by a spouse alone. That, that's not going to satisfy me. A spouse wasn't made to satisfy me. A spouse is not my God. I need the truth of the gospel that Jesus is enough for me. We need to preach truth to ourselves. Now, big danger sometimes is we read this and we think that Jesus used Bible verses almost like spells or incantations, that here comes this temptation and I got to use the Bible, which is my Harry Potter's book of spells, and I, I need to find the right verse. And if I speak that verse and say these things, then that temptation goes away. Well, if you've tried it, you've probably seen that that temptation doesn't go away just because you're saying something. It's not that we're saying that and that's the power to make sin flee. It's that we're preaching truth to ourselves in the face of a lie that's being preached to us. Uh, The way that we're transformed is by the renewing of our mind. And if we can hear sin's lie and say, that's not true, here's what is true, then we're replacing that lie with truth, and that's where we get a lot of our strength to not sin. Uh, we, we don't want to think that just saying those words makes the temptation go away because it doesn't. But the more we believe truth, the more that the truth sets us free. So, so Jesus knows scripture, quotes the scripture, believes the scripture, and that's where sin is resisted. That's where the power comes from. And we should do the same thing. We should know scripture. So it's good to go home and find the passages of the Bible that speak to some of our besetting sins, whether they're gossip or lust or greed. Find those passages. And when the temptation comes, preach the truth to ourselves. Don't, don't just try to not be tempted and have your mind blank because you can't have a mind blank. You know, it, it's like if I were to say right now, don't think about purple elephants. Just don't. No, don't, don't. Like immediately you're all going, I'm doing it. I, I'm trying not to, but I, I can't just say I'm not going to do that. And what we pretty often try to do is, you know, lust comes up and I say, I'm not going to think about that. I'm not going to think about that. I'm doing it. I, the way that we drive that out is with a different thought, with a true thought. And so it's good to know the scripture to be able to stand against sin like Jesus does here. Uh, Verse five, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So at first Jesus was tempted with pleasure and comfort. Now he's tempted probably with pride and fame. You know, if he goes up to the pinnacle of the temple and stands there and throws himself down, I'm sure all those worshipers who are gathered down below will know who he is. They'll worship immediately. He won't have to go through all the suffering that he was going to have to go through over the next few years. He'll get allegiance right away. 
And so he's tempted to kind of skirt God's plan and skirt the suffering. He's tempted with the fame and the pride that would come when these angels catch him. He's tempted with all of that, but he says, quoting scripture, and we'll come back to this scripture in a second, he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Stands up against that. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you. He offers him power. If you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So now he comes and says, you get all the power in the world. Everybody's bowing down to you. Just, just, just yield to me and they're all yours. But Jesus says, I won't yield to you. I know the truth that I should worship God and serve him only. So Jesus goes out into the wilderness. He's tested. He's worn down, but he passes all the tests. And a big teaching of scripture that we all need to know is that Jesus Christ was tempted just like we are. Sometimes we think, well, my temptation's unique, my temptation's stronger. But according to scripture, he was tempted in every way that we are, but without sin. Listen to Hebrews 4.15. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet is without sin. Now, now we look at that, and it seems like there have got to be some ways that Jesus wasn't tempted. I mean, he wasn't living in the same modern world that we're living in. I mean, Jesus was never tempted to smoke crack, because there wasn't crack. Like, he, he I don't think. Um, so, so that wasn't a temptation. Jesus was never tempted to go to inappropriate websites. Um, he was never tempted to cheat on his IRS forms. He was never tempted with anger when his Pontiac Aztec broke down. Like, he, he didn't have all the same... So, so how can we, we read through this and believe it when it says that he's tempted in all the same ways that we are? And I think the teaching of Scripture is that while some of the sins on the surface may be unique to, to different eras, at the root, sin is the same. You know, we're tempted with pleasure and comfort. We're tempted with pride. We're tempted with power. We're tempted to use good things in the wrong context. We're tempted to skirt God's plan. We're tempted to do things the easy way. We're tempted in the same root way that Jesus was. So, so we don't want to look at our experience and say, well, I can't resist my sin because I have this totally unique experience. Jesus doesn't know what it's like to be me in 2012. According to Scripture, he does. You know, sometimes we'll go through and I'll say, yeah, I just keep falling in the same way, but what can I do? You know, I'm only human. He was human too. Yeah, but he was God. But that didn't mean that he wasn't tempted. He went through it, he's endured it, and he passed. Verse 11, the devil left him, and behold, angels came and we're ministering to him. So there's triumph in the desert. They're celebrating. They're probably giving him some food at this point. He's won. He's passed the test. And we're called to see here that even exhaustion, hunger, even being out in the wilderness, even fear from wild animals, whatever it is, is not an excuse to sin. So all of us in our struggle against sin, we really don't have an excuse. We're never forced to. The Bible says whenever we're tempted, God provides a way out. He provides a way of escape. We're never locked into it. No matter how ingrained the habit is, no matter how many times we've fallen in the past, we can resist. We can beat our sin. But there's a problem. Our biggest problem is not that we can't follow this technique. Our problem is not that we don't know what the technique is to fight sin. Our biggest problem is not that we need some better strategy. Someone needs to come and tell me how it is that I can fight sin. Our biggest problem is that we don't care. We don't want to fight sin. We can know all the right techniques, but but what if we don't want to do it? 
I mean, right now, I, um, I know how to use all the machines at Planet Fitness, um, I think. There, there are a couple that I, I don't know if I do know how to use them, but um, for the most part, I know how. I know I'd try to use one of those, and they'd say, hey, could you get out of the mop cleaner? <laughs> Sorry, it's working on my calves. But, um, but for the most part, I know how it's done. I know how to use those machines. I know how to lift those weights. I know how to go on those treadmills. I know how everything there works, but I still don't go. And, and my problem is not that I need a lesson on how to use those different things. My problem is that I, I'm just not motivated to go to Planet Fitness except for when it's pre, free pizza day. And, um, and then, then it's like, oh, I'll work out today. So what do I do with that? What do I do with the fact that, that lessons won't get me where I'm going at Planet Fitness? And what's worse, right across the street from my Planet Fitness is a mighty taco. So, um, so I'll be driving down the street. And you say, oh, I work out at that Planet Fitness. I never see you there. I know, I know. And so I'll be driving down the street with sweatpants on and a t-shirt ready to go and work out. And I've got the Planet Fitness angel on this shoulder and the mighty taco angel on this shoulder. And they're both calling to me. Um, you know, and they're both quoting Bible verses, so I don't know which one's good. This guy, this guy over here is going, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. And then this guy over here is going, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Take and eat. Like, and so they're both <laughs> preaching. And, and I'm driving, and I, I don't want to go to Planet Fitness. So you pull in a mighty taco, and you walk in there. Everybody there has got sweatpants and T-shirts on. They're all they're like, Planet Fitness today? Yep, yep. I'm doing 20, rip, 20 reps in my super mighty burrito. And... Um, so if someone were to come in, you know, the, one of the trainers at Planet Fitness walks into Mighty Taco and they say, here's what I need to do. I just need to show you how to use the stuff. You don't. That's not going to help me at all. I know how to use it. I don't want to. And, and here's where we usually end this message about the temptation of Jesus uh, when, we, when we talk about it in the church. We say, here's the strategy. Here's how you use the machines. Pull the Bible verses out. Believe that truth. Speak that truth in the face of the lie. Believe it in your heart. Make sure you're not thinking about that temptation. You're thinking about the same. And that's all right. That's all good. But here's what happens is we'll go home today and we'll say, that's right. I have been lazy. I haven't been fighting sin. So I'm going to write down these verses on a three by five card. I'm going to go to bible.crosswalk.com. I'm going to find verses that speak to my temptation. I'm going to put those cards in my pocket during the week this week when I go to work and I'm tempted with anger because of that guy over there. I'm going to pull it out. I'm going to read it. I'm going to speak the truth. And I'm going to come home Monday celebrating. Because this does work. Believing the Bible in the face of a lie works. It does the trick. So, so this is good. This, this is working. I'm doing it. But then the days wear on and the weeks wear on. And two weeks from now on Friday, your guard came down. And you just weren't paying attention this time. Or you were so worn out from the week, so worn out, and you've seen the ways that you've fallen before that you just don't care. You know that you've done this before, and you feel almost like you're, you're Charlie Brown going out to kick the football again. Like, yes, okay, I'm coming home from church, and this week I'm going to fight temptation. And then once again, you go out, and by the end of the week, you're laying flat on your back. And what can happen is that can happen time and time again, and we can develop a pattern where we just harden our hearts. We get really good at hearing truth but not responding to it. We get really good at hearing what I'm supposed to be doing, but then I'm so used to falling when I try to do it that I don't even try to get up anymore. We get really good at, at having this heart that's hard and we come to church and put on the face and, and, and do that surface Christian life. But ultimately, because we're not motivated and because our hearts are so hard, we don't fight temptation. So what do we do with that? Because I guarantee it's just not another lesson on how to use the machines. This is what Mark says, and this is, this is the good news. Mark doesn't say, here's what Jesus did in the wilderness, so go do that. All he says 
is Jesus went out in the wilderness and he did this. This is so important for us to get. If we want a heart that can be softened again, warmed again, if we want to be motivated again, it's to believe what Mark's saying here. And if we just rewind a little bit, I just want to draw some parallels here. Jesus goes out into the wilderness to meet with John the, Bapti- John the Baptist. He's baptized in the river, and the Spirit flutters down and hovers over him like a dove with the voice of the Father speaking. Now, if you were someone who had read the Old Testament, the part of the Bible that was written before Jesus was incarnated, before he came on the scene, there's some familiar language going on here. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And that, that little phrase, without form and, wo- and void, is a phrase that can be translated wilderness. In fact, later on, when the Israelites are wandering around in the wilderness, it uses the same phrase, that they're wandering around in the without form and void. So God creates everything, and there's wilderness and there's water in it. It says, And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. One literal translation actually renders this, the Spirit of God was fluttering over the waters. So Genesis is saying, God created everything. And you see the Spirit come and flutter down over the waters in the wilderness. Mark is saying, this is like that same thing, only a do-over. Because what happens later in Genesis is things go bad. If you go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Adam and Eve are in the garden. Everything's good. There's paradise that's there. God has spoken everything into existence. There are all these trees they can eat from. Um, it's almost like you know, Mary Poppins. They're friendly animals all around. It's, it's a jolly holiday with Eve, and they're enjoying themselves. They're, they're eating the fruit from the trees. They're celebrating. They're dancing. Everything's happy. And then chapter 3, verse 1, the first time we see Satan speaking, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Tempts her with pride. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, tempts her with pleasure, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, tempts her with power, we know how this goes. Now, I don't know, if you're like me, every time you read the story, you're just going, don't do it. (laughs) Like, everything is good. Why would you do this? You have every fruit from the tree. Do you know how bad things are going to be? Just avoid that one fruit and probably just for a little while. This is just a temporary thing, I think. I think eventually that tree gets plucked or eventually they're allowed to eat it or something. But for this time, for their period of testing, God said, don't eat from that one tree. And so you're going, Adam and Eve, just don't. Don't fall. And the odds are in their favor. I mean, what else could Adam want? The guy has a good job. He, he gets up in the morning and he works the garden. He's got a full belly. He's got all the food you could ever imagine. He's got a pretty wife. Everything is really good. And all these little cartoon animals that are friendly and happy all around. Everything's perfect. So we read this and we're going, man, the odds are in your favor, Adam. Like, you should pass this test. This shouldn't be a problem at all. This is like the 49ers playing the Bills today. This should not be hard. Um, This should be buttoned up by halftime. And uh, that's how it's going to go. So why is it? I mean, we see this Adam and we're going, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And then he eats and he does it and everything's ruined. Genesis tells this story of the creation. But then when Mark comes, it's saying something significant about Jesus. Uh, Later on in the scripture, it calls Jesus the second Adam. 
that Jesus comes, and, and this time the odds are stacked against the second Adam. He's not in a paradise garden anymore. He's out in the wilderness. He doesn't have happy, friendly animals around him. Mark says that there are wild animals around him that are out there. Uh, he's worn out. He hasn't been eaten from all the fruits from all these other trees. He doesn't have a full belly. He's been fasting for 40 days. Things are not good. The odds are stacked against Jesus. He's definitely the underdog in his story. And so we read this story in Mark, and we're supposed to be going, he's going out to be tempted. Don't do it. Don't do it. And he doesn't do it. The second Adam comes along, and he passes the test that the first Adam failed. That, that, that old creation that just got wrecked when everything fell, and when, the, when those guys sinned, when everything broke at that point, in Jesus is the beginning of a new creation. Something new is coming, something, some, coming, something better is coming, and this is what we need to believe to be motivated to go out there and, yes, use all the right techniques to fight sin, but to have a heart that's soft enough to want to do it again. We need to believe not just in Christ as our example. He is our example. He is our Christus exemplar. But we need to believe more than that in Christus victor, that he's our victor. He's the one who went out and passed all the tests that Adam failed, that everybody in the Bible failed, that we fail. He passed those tests, and then he credited his good score to our behalf. This is what softens our hearts again and again. This is what warms us so that we can, as we realize the acceptance we have before God because of what Jesus did, actually motivates us to go out and fight sin again. Um, the right techniques only go so far. We need a heart that's changed by the gospel to actually go out and fight. And this is really the theme of the entire Bible. The theme of the entire Bible is that people have failed, so God comes to be a rescuer. Uh, the, The theme of the Bible is not people have failed, so don't fail like them. It says we are a failed race. We are a failed people. We don't pass the tests. But he came and passed the tests on our behalf. You know, we read the story of David and Goliath, and you see that story, and, and usually we hear, so go out and be brave like David. But what that story is saying is you've got all God's people failing the test. You've got all these people cowering, and they're scared because they can't fight the Philistines. They can't fight giants. How could they ever do this? They're dead. There's no hope for them. They go all through Israel, and there's nobody who can fight those guys. And so finally, they call someone who really couldn't take credit because he's a little shepherd boy, and he can't even wear the armor. So God chooses that guy to go out and use some ridiculous means, whip some rocks at the guy, knock him down and kill him as the stand-in for that cowardly army over there. The message of the Bible is that we're the cowardly army, and Jesus came to be that stand-in for us. He came to slay someone bigger than Goliath. He came to slay Satan and sin and death to do it on our behalf so that we could be free so that we could win victories even though we didn't win the victory, so that we could have a win credited to us even though we didn't have a win. That's the message of Scripture. This is the big message that we want to be driving home in our kids' classes week after week. Actually, today we're starting the Gospel Project curriculum, and this is a way of just going through the Bible over the course of a few years in all of our kids' classes and telling the stories just as the Bible tells them the way that they were meant to be told where Jesus ends up being the hero of every story. Um, so, so by the way, as parents, um, every week you're going to see cards like this going home and some good discussion starters for, for your kids and to, to pull out of them, hey, what'd you learn in class? So they don't just say nothing. Um, there's some good questions on the back of these cards to talk about the things the kids are learning. If you don't use the kids' classes, if you keep your kids out in service with you, um, feel free to grab some of these. We'd be happy to send these home with you and, and give you the same thing so that you can be going through the same kind of thing with your kids to teach them that Jesus is the hero of every story of the Bible and he needs to be the hero of our lives. 
You know, when we read through the Bible, it shouldn't motivate us to go out and depend on ourselves more and believe in ourselves more. It should motivate us to depend on Jesus and, and to believe in him more. It should motivate us to realize that everybody fails but Jesus, and the good news is he loves us and he offers us his passing score. You know, even uh, when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness in Matthew 4, what we just looked at, he quotes from a verse. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6.16. I just want to put this up here for a second. Um, he quotes this verse that says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Remember, he's up on the temple and he says, Satan, I'm not going to do it. You don't put God to the test. And the rest of that verse that he's quoting from says, as you tested him at Massa. And the story at Massa was this. This is Exodus 17. Uh, God says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, talking to Moses, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people against Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So, so their big test was, I don't know if God's among us. I don't know if he's here. I don't know if he'll be enough for us. So they put him to the test, and they failed that test. They failed their test by testing God. Later on, Jesus goes into the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days, and he passed the test by saying, God is among us. God is here. God is enough, and I don't put God to the test. So the theme of the Bible is Israel failed, but Jesus passed. He's the true and better Israel. They broke the laws, but he passed them for us. We fail, but he passed for us. So when we go out into our weeks and we inevitably fall short of where we wanted to be with all of our commitments, when we inevitably don't use the strategies that we know we should use, and when we have that temptation to just say, I quit, I'm done, I've done this a thousand times, I've fallen a thousand times, I'm not even going to confess that anymore because I'm a failure, I'm just, I'm just laying here in my misery, I'm not going to get up, I'm not going to fight anymore, the only thing that will soften our hearts to actually get back into that fight again is believing that Jesus passed the test for us. So this week, you're going to go out there and fail just like me. Maybe you'll have some, some success, but ultimately, even our success will have a little bit of failure wrapped around it. We're just bad. But the good news is that Jesus passed. He succeeded. That he is not just Christus exemplar. He's not just our example, but he's Christus victor. He passed the test for us. So he goes out to the wilderness, he passes the test, there's a celebration as the angels come and they, they bring him food, they minister to him, and then verse 14, it says, now, this is Mark 1, again, verse 14, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the good news of God. Guys, I passed the test. And saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. So once we see who Jesus really is and we see that he passes the test, what that produces in us is a radical allegiance to Jesus. These guys immediately drop things and follow him. They completely leave their lives behind to follow him. Um, they don't have all their questions answered about who Jesus is. They don't understand the whole thing yet, but they say what we know about him is good enough that we're willing to leave it all behind and follow Christ. So what produces that allegiance, what produces obedience, and what produces following in us 
is belief in the good news of God. It's not that we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and said, I'm going to fight really hard and I'm going to win this time. It's that we believed in the one who won on our behalf. And then it does this counterintuitive work to make us far more obedient than we would have been if we had just been trying with human effort. You know, when, when we say we've got to pass these tests, otherwise God won't like us, we're not going to pass those tests. We're going to feel that pressure, we're going to feel broken, and we're going to give up. But if we say Jesus passed the test so we are loved and accepted by God just because we've trusted in him, that so changes and warms and softens our hearts that we're actually motivated again. Our biggest problem is not that we don't know the techniques. Our biggest problem is that we don't believe the gospel like we should. And so the big place to go when we see our failure, when we see our hardness, when we see the ways we keep falling is to look again at the gospel of Jesus. The gospel is not just what gets us started in the Christian life so we can become Christians, so we can be forgiven and go to heaven someday. It does do all of that. But the gospel is what we continually look back into, continually gaze into so that our hearts can be softened and changed again. And this is why we get together every week, not to just share best practices. We get together to worship Jesus so we can believe the gospel again. This is why we're going to take the Lord's Supper in a couple minutes, to, to drive more faith into our hearts. You know, the Lord's Supper is not an announcement that we need to go out and try harder. The Lord's Supper is this announcement that Jesus' body was torn for us, that Jesus' blood was shed for us. And so because of that, if we just have faith in that, then we have new life in him. We have forgiveness of sins. We have everlasting life. We are forgiven, restored, even for the sins that we've committed 10,000 times if we've trusted in Christ, and we announce that when we take this supper together. We're people who don't just believe good advice, but who deeply believe good news and, and don't believe it as much as we should. So week after week, we gather to worship. Week after week, we, we take this Lord's Supper and we do it to, to increase that faith in our hearts. Uh, for now, if we could just bow our heads and close our eyes for a minute, please. Christians, it's, it's really easy for us to, to get our eyes off of that gospel. To be so convinced that everything depends on ourselves and, and so aware of how much that we've failed that, that our walks with God just dissipate. We just quit trying. So the call for us as Christians today is to again believe the gospel. To again believe that, that yeah, we failed even worse than we think we failed. But the good news is that Jesus took that on himself. Jesus died on the cross to, to absorb the wrath for all of our failures that all of us deserve. And then he credits to our account his righteousness in his passing of the test. This is really good news. So let's confess the ways to God that we, we've gotten our minds and our hearts off of that. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Christ, um, you may have heard the message that the way to connect yourself to God is by going to church enough, doing enough good things, you know, loving people enough around you. And you've tried that, and it doesn't seem like it did it. And the truth is, according to scriptures, it didn't do it. The gap between us and God because of our sin, because we've fallen short, is far too wide. We can't pass that test on our own. We, we can't bridge that gap. So the good news of the gospel is that God came to us. That Jesus died and he was buried and he rose again. So that the Bible says, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So if you're here and you recognize the sin and the brokenness, then trust Jesus. Trust that he is Christus Victor. Trust that on that cross, he died to slay your enemies. He died to pass your tests. 
He's buried and he rose again so that if you trust in him, you can have that same life, that same unity with God, that same future. And so from the bottom of your heart, just cry out, God, I know how sinful I am. I know that I deserve your judgment, but I believe that you died for me. I believe you were buried and you rose again. And so, so I turn from my sin, I turn from my unbelief, and I turn to follow you. This is good news. We have a mighty Savior.